Welcome back to the program. As we continue to debate health care in America, as more people come into the system, the single most significant effort now is to figure out ways to reduce costs. Perhaps the best place to start is with the one epidemic that accounts for no less than 10% of all health care costs in America. That epidemic is obesity. Perhaps it can all best be summed up by the classic joke about two women lunching in a little neighborhood bistro. One of them turns to the other and said, the food here is just not very good. The other turns around and says, yes, I know, and such small portions. In that little joke lies some of our most complex problems, the limits of self-control and human nature, and the expectations of our current food environment. My guest, Deborah Cohn, in her book, A Big Fat Crisis, argues that this forms the basis of our most urgent public health crisis. Dr. Deborah Cohn is a medical scientist at the RAND Corporation. She received her MPH in epidemiology from the UCLA School of Public Health and her MD from the School of Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania. It is my pleasure to welcome Dr. Deborah Cohn here to talk about a big fat crisis, the hidden forces behind the obesity epidemic and how we can end it. Deborah Cohn, thanks so much for joining us. Well, thanks for inviting me on your program. Great to have you here. When we look around, we see perhaps more diet books and and health books on the shelves than in any other country, and certainly gym memberships always increase this time of year, and yet this obesity epidemic just seems to keep growing. Talk about it in a broad sense, first of all. Yeah, well, obesity is the public health crisis of our times. Two out of three adults are overweight or obese, one out of three children. Uh, obesity is killing hundreds of thousands of people every year. It's second only to tobacco as the actual cause of death in America. Um, it leads to chronic diseases like heart disease, diabetes, hypertension, and even cancer. And all of this is happening, in my view, because the food industry has turned our country into a food swamp. Can we pinpoint the moment in time, the tipping point, if you will, in which obesity truly became an epidemic in this country? Yeah, uh, you know, the CDC is following the weight of Americans over time. And if you look at the trends of the percentage of Americans who are obese, in 1980, the uh, rate accelerated, and so between 1980 and 2000, the number of people who were considered obese in America doubled. And, and really what happened in the beginning of the 80s is that the food industry recognized what kind of marketing practices had the biggest impact on people's purchasing. So early in the 1980s, contracts... Uh, for example, for at supermarkets where the manufacturers paid the retailers for shelf space started increasing. They found out if they put foods on the end of aisles or at the cash registers, they could eat, they could increase sales of their products by two to five fold. One of the things you talk about is the whole issue of self-control and what's changed in that regard and how we need to look at it in terms of really the immutable aspects of human nature, that it's really hard to argue that we have less self-control today than we did perhaps 30 years ago. Yeah, that's right. I think this is not a problem that people have all of a sudden lost their self-control or that Americans in general lack personal responsibility. It's really insulting to say that this problem is due to a lack of personal responsibility because Americans on the whole are hardworking, they pay their taxes, they you know raise families, they volunteer for their communities. 
you know, we're not a morally inferior people. But what's happened is that the environment around us has so much food, you know, it's so convenient, it's so available, there's so many advertising, it's ubiquitous that it really stimulates us to feel hungry when we don't need to eat. Yet the other side of that is that every effort to rein this in in terms of public policy and perhaps New York City being the penultimate example these days is met with the argument that it is impinging upon our freedoms. Yes, uh, you know, I think there's quite a misunderstanding of what are the regulations that are being proposed and that's being fostered by the food industry. You know, they're making billions by keeping people overeating, and if people stop overeating, they're going to lose billions of dollars. So obviously they don't want to see a change. You know, they're profiting by making us sick. And so really all the regulations that I've seen proposed are not about limiting free choice. They're about making it transparent at the point of purchase what you're actually getting. Talk a little bit about what you would like to see more transparent at that point of purchase. Okay, so at restaurants, what I would like to see are standardized portion sizes. And so when we go out to eat, we would automatically be able to get a serving that's really appropriate for a single person. It could be benchmarked to the average person, you know, who needs about 2,000 calories a day. So, for example, a meal would be about 700 calories. And you know, that would be a single portion or, you know, we could use the USDA standards and say, okay, a portion of meat is three ounces, a portion of vegetables is one cup. You know, it would just take a kitchen scale and a measuring cups for restaurants to be able to comply. And so that way, you know, if we're ordering food, we get one portion. Now, if we want more, we can order more. No problem. And we'll know what we're getting. We'll know if we order two portions, well, that's, you know, amount for two people or for for example, someone who's a triathlete and, you know, does a lot of physical activity and needs more calories than other people. So right now, when you go to a restaurant, everybody is serving different portion sizes, and it's almost impossible to, to, for people to gauge how much they're getting. In many ways, it's worse than that, because not only are they all serving different portion sizes, is that the size of the portion has now become a competitive advantage. Right, exactly. And, and people are getting way, way more you know, than they can really ever burn. I mean, even if you, in some places, even if you only eat half, it's probably an amount intended for two people. Um, so anyway, so that's restaurants. and supermarkets, what I would like to see is an end to impulse marketing strategies uh, for junk food. So that means, like, no more candy at the cash register, no more chips and soda on the ends of the aisles, and I'm not saying to ban that food. I'm just saying let's move it somewhere else. Let's put it in the middle of the aisle, maybe on the bottom shelf, where people who really don't want that product won't have to face it, you know, when they walk out the door. And people who really want it, they can still get it. They just have to go and, and look for it. We, we shouldn't make the foods that we should be moderating our intake of so convenient, you know, and so tempting that, you know, people who want to refuse or, you know, resist them, that it's not too challenging for them. Given that these public policy changes seem extremely difficult to make, particularly in light of the power and the, and the influence of the food industry, even the degree to which the food industry is subsidized to produce high-calorie and high-sugar food, 
To that extent, what individual actions should we be looking at to try and deal with this epidemic? Because certainly from a policy perspective, it seems a lot more difficult. Well, you're right. It's going to be difficult because the food industry certainly isn't going to want change. But it doesn't mean we can't have change. You know, we've had we've made all kinds of changes in this country, uh, you know, for example, to regulate alcohol. And probably most people are not aware that 200 years ago, our nation was considered a nation of drunkards because alcohol was the beverage of choice. Water was, you know, clean water was not readily accessible. It was considered unfit for humans and only for animals. And people were drunk all the time. They served alcohol to children. They served it, you know, on the job. They, politicians gave it out freely. The tavern was the central social institution in town. And, and gradually people recognized that this is a problem, that people were drinking too much and they were, you know, actually uh, dying in the streets because they'd fall, you know, unconscious in the cold weather and, you know, it was a big problem. So uh, in the 1830s, they started passing some regulations, and they, their goal was to restrict alcohol availability. And they, they said alcohol was a problem and people were its victims. And, and we need that kind of spirit today. Um, you know, at that time, they said, okay, uh, we're limiting, you know, where alcohol can be sold, when it can be sold, to whom it could be sold. But we can take some of those principles and enact them. But it, it's, it is going to take a lot of people, a lot of political will, a lot more discussion, and, and getting everyone on the same page that the problem isn't so much irresponsible people, it's irresponsible business practices. But the other elephant in the room in this conversation is that it is also an economic and class issue, that we know for a fact that those in the higher income brackets suffer less obesity than those in lower income brackets. Well, uh, they still suffer a lot because obesity rates have increased across the entire socioeconomic spectrum. So, you know, even among doctors, you know, they're, you know, about 44% are overweight or obese. I mean, that's still a huge, huge number. You know, if you compare it to, you know, how smoking has declined more uh, among, you know, the different socioeconomic strata, we still have way bigger problem with overweight and obesity, you know, you know, across everybody. So, yeah, there are differences, but still everybody can benefit from, you know, weight control policies. Should we be looking at advertising itself, food advertising itself, the way, in, in many ways, the way we look at uh, drug advertising? Uh, well, I think we do need to uh, recognize that food advertising does get people, you know, interested in food and, you know, can make them hungry when they really don't need to eat. But, you know, trying to regulate speech, I think, is very tricky in America because we have this, you know, very strong tradition of free speech. And so rather than um, somehow ban or limit advertising, what I suggest is promoting counter-advertising where we have some other, you know, messages that really help point out to people how they're being duped and tricked, you know, into feeling hungry, you know, when they don't need to eat or, you know, buying products that are only going to be bad for their health. So it worked with tobacco. It was really one of the most effective things that, that uh, was implemented in the 19, um, late 1960s. We had the Fairness Doctrine. 
and it was mandated that for every, you know, 1 to 12 tobacco ads, they had to air an anti-tobacco ad. And when that happened, tobacco sales fell 15%. And the tobacco industry got very worried, and they quickly cut a deal and said, okay, no more anti-tobacco ads, and we won't put our pro-tobacco ads on TV. So they took all tobacco advertising off TV, but then they, you know, lost the anti-tobacco ads. And guess what? After they removed the anti-tobacco ads, the sales of tobacco went up again. One of the other things that had a profound impact and still does to this day on cigarettes is the cost. The fact that taxes on top of taxes on top of taxes have been added to the cost of cigarettes to make it less attractive. In, in terms of food, the opposite has happened. The price of junk food continues to drop. The price of food that is high calorie continues to drop. Do we need to be looking at a, at a tax structure on that kind of food the way that New York looked at with a tax on, on soft drinks and junk food? Yeah, you know, definitely taxes could, uh, you know, decrease the consumption. You know, there's some price elasticity so that the higher the price of something, the less people will buy of it. Uh, I think it's also tricky. Um, people hate taxes. It certainly is an important option to consider, but there's more than taxes that we could be doing that could make a big difference. Talk a little bit about some of the other public policy prescriptions that you would like to see that, that can begin to address the epidemic proportions of obesity. Well, you know, as I said, my top three are going to be standardized portions, limits of impulse marketing, and, of course, it's counter-advertising. Mm-hmm. But when, when I'm talking about impulse marketing, it's not only in a supermarket. So, for example, I would like to see all the candy and soda removed from places like hardware stores and bookstores and, you know, get rid of that chocolate in the lingerie department of Macy's. I mean, really, <laughs> what is candy and cookies and chips doing at places that don't sell food? You know, they're just encouraging people to eat, you know, all throughout the day, all the time. So impulse marketing is, you know, like vending machines. Do we really need junk food vending machines in every office building? I don't think so. Um, the other thing is, what about hours of service? You know, the fact that we have food available 24-7 means that everyone can act impulsively, that nobody needs to plan uh, to shop, and, and that encourages poor choices. So we might think about limiting the hours of food availability, or, you know, for example, what about limiting the hours of the drive through you know, only have a drive through window open between, you know, 12 and 2, you know, or, you know, at dinner time. But, you know, if people want to stop for something to eat after the usual meal hours, they have to park their car and walk inside. Because sometimes it's just the convenience that leads people to eat when they don't need to. Talk a little bit about the broader conversation that we need to have about obesity, that it that it is a problem, that it is not something that we can just let continue the way it is going right now. Yeah, so so I think the main barrier to doing what we need to do is, you know, and having some government regulation of food marketing is the misperception that this is all about personal responsibility. You know, it's really a misunderstanding of human nature on on how our desire to eat and our hunger is triggered. 
you know, most people tend to think their feelings of hunger are coming from inside of them. But, you know, people are not like cars. You know, we don't just have a, a one tank that can only hold so much gas, and then when that burns, we, we put in more. No, we have a huge capacity to uh, take food in, and if we don't use those calories, we can store them as fat for later use. And so we have so many mechanisms that make us feel hungry. We are responsive more to external factors and triggers than to internal factors. And that means the environment is stronger than we are as individuals in controlling our behaviors. So it's the, it's the food swamp around us that's triggering our feelings of hunger, that's making us crave food, you know, and eat more when we don't need to eat. And so we've got to take the blame off of individuals. We have to recognize that, you know, we're in this environment that's really polluting, you know, our our vision and our you know our desire to eat so we have to target the environment and and stop thinking that people are going to be able to solve this on their own do you think that the medical community and the public health community has done an effective enough job of conveying the dangers of obesity Yes, I actually do think so. I think people recognize that being obese is really bad for their health. The problem is they are they have a very difficult time doing something about it because they don't control the environment that they're being exposed to. And and really where public health has really uh, failed and you know been off the job is in you know, recognizing how much the environment influences people and then doing something to regulate that environment. Is there a danger, though, on the other side of that, of letting people off the hook too easily? Does that in some way contribute, in some small portion perhaps, but nonetheless contribute to the problem? No, I don't think that's a problem whatsoever. I mean, you know, why do we bother to make sure the water is safe to drink? You know, why don't we let people have to boil it and filter it and store it? I mean, aren't we making them lazy by having the water clean all the time? I mean, isn't that a ridiculous argument? No. If we had a safe food environment the way we have safe water, it would relieve people of the burden, of the dr- drudgery of having to figure out what to do to keep them healthy. I mean, that's what government is about, is that we need to make life easier. We need to create conditions that make people healthy, and that way they're free to do other things and to, you know, be productive and reach their personal goals. So, no, if we make the world easy, you know, like if we fix the potholes on the street, you people don't have to slow, be slow and you know, it just helps everybody all around. Do we need to be addressing this also in the context of our agricultural policy and those things which we subsidize driving down the cost of some of this junk food? Well, I think uh, there's a lot of controversy about how much the subsidies contribute to the cost of junk food because generally all products, the, the ingre- you know, the processed foods, the ingredients themselves are just a fraction of the cost. It's really the processing, it's the packaging and the advertising that, you know, contributes more to the cost of the food. But I I think we really could have better agricultural policies, for example, uh, maybe even subsidizing fruits and vegetables, you know, making those a little bit 
uh, less expensive, and of, of course, you know, maybe even doing more to make meats uh, more expensive. You know, meats uh, and dairy products uh, contribute very heavily to uh, global warming, you know, and greenhouse gas emissions. And if we could do more to reduce their consumption and the demand for those goods, we would not only help our own health, but help the health of the planet. What about the urban food deserts that we see where in urban areas where there is a limited availability of, of fresh fruits and vegetables sometimes? Yeah, so I actually think the problem is the opposite. You know, even though may, there might be fewer supermarkets, what is in those communities are more convenience stores. And so it's really that they're exposed to greater quantities of junk food and unhealthy food rather than, you know, insufficient fruits and vegetables. I mean, really, the problem is, you know, large portions and too much junk food, chips, soda, candy, cookies. And so we need to reduce the access to those foods uh, more than we need to increase access to fruits and vegetables because, Really, when you you know see what people are buying in those neighborhoods, they they actually go out to supermarkets maybe a little further from their homes. They find a way to get those foods. It's, we just need to protect them from the junk foods. Do we need to be doing a better job of educating young people? And when I say young people, I'm talking about starting literally at kindergarten, first grade. Well, I I actually don't think education um, is you know, as much of a problem as people think. Uh, you know, I don't know that people were more educated 30 years ago about nutrition, yet, you know, obesity rates were lower. It really has to do with changing our environments. Uh, we need to figure out a way to limit all of the exposure to the junk food, to counteract these advertisements that make it seem like food is a consequence-free entertainment. I mean... That's the problem. It's it's all of the rhetoric that's uh, around us that's not being countered, and, and we don't have alternatives. Talk about that, because that really has been a goal in some respects of the restaurant business, to make food and to make eating out a kind of entertainment. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, people definitely like convenience, and I'm not against eating out. I think that that's great, but I just think that it's wrong for restaurants to put people at risk for chronic diseases. You know, 96% of the entrees available in restaurants will increase the risk of a chronic disease because, you know, they don't meet the USDA guidelines. They have too much fat, too many calories, too much sugar, too much salt. And if restaurants would serve food that wouldn't harm people, great, then maybe it would be better to go out to eat than to eat at home. Uh, so I think it's restaurants that need to change what's on the menu, and, and then it would be fine. Dr. Deborah Cohn, the book is A Big Fat Crisis, The Hidden Forces Behind the Obesity Epidemic and How We Can End It. Deborah, I thank you so much for spending time with us. Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate Happy it. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. We'll take a break. I'll be right back. 